Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, December 19th, and we're discussing Lowe's. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Buck Hartzell. How's it going, Buck? Hey, good, Nick. Thanks for having me. I think this is my first time on Industry Focus, so this is this is great. Yeah, I think maybe you've been on with JMO, but I think it's definitely oh, your first okay. time with first me. Time with so you, I know we yeah. get to chat around the office, and now we get to chat on recording that's, for the whole world to hear. How that's, exciting. That's right. It is exciting. Yeah, I mentioned we're talking about Lowe's today. A lot of folks might think home improvement <laughs> when you say that, uh, but yep. we're not talking about that Lowe's. What no. Lowe's are we talking about today? We're talking about Lowe's, which is a mini conglomerate type of company. So you can kind of think about this almost as a small Berkshire Hathaway, right? They own a bunch of other businesses. Some of those, uh, they have a controlling interest and they're publicly traded, so which is kind of nice. So you can easily see what they're valued and get financial statements on them. Others, they own 100% of them. They're kind of within their fold of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the history of this company is particularly interesting. You mentioned Berkshire Hathaway, you know, a company that's been run by Warren Buffett going back to the 1960s. And I think uh, Lowe's is similar in that way in that the Tisch family has been running this company uh, ever since that period of time. Two brothers founded the company. I think we're on the second generation uh, running that company today. What is the role of the Tisch family in this company? Is How significant are they uh, to the business? Yeah, so they are significant. By the way, Lowe's, I would say, is spelled different as well. O-L-O-E-W-S, and the ticker uh, is just L. Yep. Change on New York Stock Exchange. But the, the Tisch family owns about 30% of the outstanding shares. So that makes them billionaires, just like Warren Buffett, just not quite as much, right? But um, still very wealthy, the New York family. Um, they've been around and involved in a lot of things in philanthropy around that area of New York City. And um, they're also operators, so they're owner-operators. So we like it. They have a lot of skin in the game. They own a lot of stock. And the ones that directly run the business own about 15% of the outstanding shares. So we love that. You know, We love owner-operators around here. Yeah, and these family businesses tend to have that long-term mindset, that long-term investment horizon that we like um, as investors here at The Motley Fool. Um, one aspect of this business, you mentioned that they're a conglomerate like Berkshire Hathaway. When you look at a company like this, how do you kind of pick it apart and analyze it as an investor to see what it's worth and you know whether it's worth investing in? Yep, so that's a good question, Nick. And there's a couple different ways. Um, you know, for the for the lazy ones of us, and this is fine to do since they have two publicly traded companies. So one of those is CNA, which is an insurer, and they own just just shy of ninety percent of the outstanding shares for CNA, and that's a pretty big insurance company. Um, uh, the valuation we could just look at times their shares times their ownership. Um, that's about eleven billion dollars right there, ten to eleven billion dollars. And then a smaller chunk is Diamond Offshore, which are these big rigs that do offshore oil discovery and help get the oil out of the ground under deep underneath the ocean. That's also publicly traded. DO is that ticker. CNA is CNA. So we could just take those two things and say, okay, what's their valuation based on what they own of each one of them? And then what are we paying for the rest of all this stuff, right? And um, so that's one way you can look at it. The other way is to kind of dig down a little detail into each of the businesses, right? But if you're starting with Lowe's, I think the easy thing is take the cash, take the debt out of there. They have a lot at the parent company, have a lot of cash. They have some debt too, um, but they're a net cash company. Um, and then the next part is just look at the different businesses that they have. CNA obviously being the biggest of all those. Sure. You, yep. you mentioned CNA and Diamond Offshore. There are a couple others that they own. Uh, just before we dive into yeah, the, yeah. those subparts of the business, what are those other, other parts? Sure. So just recently, they bought all of Boardwalk Park. So that's um, one of their companies that used to be publicly traded. They owned uh, 51% of it, and then they bought all of it. So um, that's pipeline business. Think about 14,000-plus miles of pipeline, and it's down at a very strategic area near the Gulf Coast, um, which is a great thing to have. And then the other piece that they have is their hotel business, and, and kind of ironically enough, that's 
kind of a part that I think is overlooked by the market um, for a couple reasons. One, they own it wholly. That's originally the way this company started way back in like the 1950s or so when um, one of the young Tishes decided to get their parents to invest $125,000 into buying a hotel. And so they did that in New, New Jersey, and that kind of started the business off. And from there, they grew it pretty quickly and added more hotels, and then they started diversifying into other assets and buying other businesses. But So today, they own a nice set of hotels. For those of you who like to travel um, down to Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, um, if you stay at one of the Universal Studios, those are um, jointly owned by Lowe's. And those have been a very successful investment for them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and let's let's kind of dive into those those subparts of the business. You know, you mentioned the two publicly traded parts of the business. You know, together, if you mark those to market on, on the lows, maybe that's twelve billion dollars or so. For those other three parts, you're maybe maybe paying if you buy lows today three billion dollars. Yeah. If you dive into the business, you'll see that they might be worth a little bit more than that. Yeah. Um, maybe even the publicly traded companies might yeah. be worth a little bit more than that. Yeah. So talking about CNA, this big insurance yeah. business that Lowe's owns about ninety percent of. Jim yeah. Tish, uh, the CEO of Lowe's, thinks they have a triple discount on those shares. You want to talk about right. uh, why that discount might be there uh, for CNA? And I think you own CNA yourself as, a, yeah. as an investment. I, I do actually, yeah, and I like them. There's a company, and they've owned them since I think 1974. So they've had a long run, and if you go back. Back, way back to the early days of CNA, it was kind of a, a, a medium-term property casualty insurer that wasn't anything special about. But what they've done over time is they've morphed this into a specialty insurance business, and it's done remarkably well. Uh, so much so that today, on average, the last couple of years, they've paid out over a billion dollars in dividends. And about 800 million of those go to Lowe's because <laughs> they're the largest shareholder. And so um, the nice thing about CNA is it trades for right around book value, which is a pretty cheap price to pay for a good insurer that typically has a uh, way we look at insurance, a couple different ways we look at combined ratio, which is their expenses plus their loss ratios. And if it's under 100, they're making money. And typically CNA does, they make money every year and they pay back a good chunk to Lowe's. They do that in the form of dividends. So one thing that's interesting, because Lowe's owns 90% of this company, they're not going to buy back much shares, because Lowe's already owns a ton of them. Um, so what they do is they pay it out in dividends. And Lowe's a big benefactor there. So if you're um, looking at a company and you like a nice dividend yield, uh, this is a company where you're going to get about 7 to 7.5% dividend yield. They pay a special dividend every year in addition to the quarterly dividend. So if you like dividends, CNA might be a good company to look at. Yeah, it's very rare you can see a company with that big, fat 7.5% dividend yield, and yeah. you can look at it and say, hey, I think uh, you know, I'm comfortable that this company can pay this over time and sustain it and that sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, Jim Tish, another thing that he mentioned about the, the insurance Business that has hit in his 40 years in the industry, there's never been more disciplined, uh, you know, profitable business being written. And right. uh, so, in an environment where you've got a reasonably valued company with a really strong dividend yield, um, in an environment that, that, that's you know quite profitable and sustainable over time, uh, you know, appears attractive. Right, and I and I think um, his words have been been borne out in the performance of the company. If you look at 2017 and 2018, they were some of the biggest catastrophe years on record. Yet this company did great, generated lots of profits. And what he's saying essentially is a lot more discipline in underwriting. And I think there's also a lot more data that drives those disciplined decisions. So I think he would say that if you look at that whole sector. Um, traditionally, it's been very volatile, right? It's been, you know, you see good times and bad times. And um, it's a lot less volatile than it's been. So he's saying this deserves a higher multiple as an industry. And he's like, if you look at us, we're right around book value. That seems really cheap for this good company. And uh, I think there's a good good argument to say that he's right there. 
Yeah, I think it's funny with all these conglomerates. Somewhere in there, there's always an insurance business, and I think it's just so attractive <laughs> for these for these great capital allocators. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned catastrophes uh, right. that have occurred, and the other publicly traded portion of this of this business, you might be able <laughs> to describe offshore oil over the last ten years to have been uh, catastrophic. I think I yeah. pulled a stat over the past five years, stocks bound about eighty two percent. But there, you know, it's it's not to say that it's, it's it's a totally valueless asset. There is, there is some signs that there could be a turnaround there, and it provides kind of a, a an upside option for lows that folks may not uh, value adequately. Yeah. So the one thing that's nice is um, this is a bet. I'd say it's a lottery ticket, right? This is a small piece of the Lowe's puzzle. If you look at they own a little over 50% of Diamond Offshore, it's a relatively small company. So it looks like, okay, well, whatever. It's not that great. And it's in a bad part of the cycle. We know that. But here's the thing. These deep water drill ships, um, the fleets have been shrinking, right? As this industry's had a bad 10 years of business, uh, the, the, the fleets have shrunk. You can't make these boats overnight, and the day rates that they charge for some of these have dropped pretty precipitously. As a result, you have a stock that was $100 a share and now is around 6 bucks per share. I mean, that's the devastation you see. But in the good years, this is a company that was paying out hundreds of millions of dollars per year in dividends up to the parent company lows. I think it'll get back there again. The the only hard thing to know is when that's going to actually happen. When are the things going to change? Jim Tish has talked about that on his conference calls. He's seen it happen in other industries as well, considerably cargo tankers he talks about. Um, and what happens is there's going to be a time where deep water drill ships are in demand again. And when they are, the day rates are going to be very good because we have a smaller fleet out there. Lowe's has a very up-to-date fleet. It's really good. Um, they're not getting the prices that they'd like right now. But the good news is the business isn't costing them that much. They're kind of buckled down. they got all their expenses in a good spot. They will be there when the turn happens. It's, we just got to find out when that's going to be. Right. I think uh, these businesses are just notoriously, brutally cyclical. Um, they have the permanent capital from Lowe's that lets them kind of withstand these cycles. And then one thing I, I looked at, you look at their, their capital structure, almost all of their debt maturities are out to 2039 and later. So if you're going to wait for the cycle to turn around, they really have a lot of time in that capital structure to wait for that to take place, yep. uh, which is really important when you've seen bankruptcies across this uh, this industry uh, you know, in very recent years. Yeah. They, they kind of talk about this as having the best balance sheet in the industry. And I think like that's uh, Part of that is because they have the backing of Big Brother Lowe's and all the capital they bring to the table. They've been able to kind of structure their debt and do those kind of things and get deals done. And so they're buckled down. I mean, they're, they accept the reality of what it is. It will turn at some point, And at that point in time, dividends will come back to Lowe's at a much higher rate, which is nice. Um, the other play that's kind of on the oil and gas space yeah. is, is this boardwalk pipelines business as we start talking about the, the privately held uh, parts of the business. And this yeah. is another, another business that cyclically uh, hasn't been great from a valuation point of view, but Lowe's was able to take advantage of that uh, to buy at a low, a low price uh, right. recently. Yep. This was an MLP, a Master Limited Partnership. And the interesting thing about this is Lowe's owned about 51% of the business. Uh, but they had a little thing in there. When the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission revised um, the rules that they had on MLPs, they basically said you can't take this allowance, income tax allowance, and uh, pass it along in your pricing anymore. That triggered a call option that Lowe's had. And they could basically buy the other 49% of the business that they didn't already own. Guess what? It wasn't at a great part of the cycle, and they bought it very cheaply. And so now they own 100% of it. It's in a great area. It's down by the Gulf um, and uh, 14,000 miles of pipeline, and they've added a couple new projects onto that, which is going to increase earnings in the future. And so what they've also had that's kind of hurt 
recent term performance is that uh, a lot of these have long-standing contracts for pipelines. They're 10-year-old contracts. They were signed in 2008 or so at uh, what are now way above market rates. So they've had to redo those contracts. Instead of extending them out another 10 years, they did short-duration contracts at much lower prices. Those will be locked in at higher rates when the rates are good again. And that will happen. You know, So um, they're investing. They're making this asset more valuable. And it's a very long-term asset that will generate good cash flows over the course of its life. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about on this show, you talk about that Gulf region. Uh, we've, we've talked about the, the natural gas or liquefied natural gas exporters and yep. how, how big an opportunity that is to take this gas that's really difficult to realize marketable you know, uh, prices that you can make money on here in North America. But as those assets open up uh, to take natural gas overseas where prices are higher, it opens up a lot of opportunities. Opportunities. If you're in the mid, a midstream player that can help transport uh, those fuels to to the exporters, uh, that's a great place to be. And so that geography is particularly valuable uh, uh, for Lowe's. And you know, we mentioned you know the valuations have come down as there's been some changes in tax law, those sorts of things. But the cash flows these businesses generate are consistent over time and very yep. predictable, which is, is important for a company like Lowe's that you know is a capital allocator. Yep. And and we mentioned one of the projects that they're doing actually connects their pipeline to one of the LNG terminals that's going to be used for export. So that's that's going to be valuable for a long time. And if we look back, you know, ten years or so, we saw that even when they owned fifty percent of Boardwalk, it was you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of dividends coming into them. Um, now they own all of it, and I think those numbers will be bigger as we look to the future, as the market gets better and their pricing for contracts improves as well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, the the hotels part of the business, the namesake part of the business yep. that bear, bears the Lowe's name. This is another aspect of this company that I think is interesting with the hotel business is they try to play into it and niche uh, areas that draw convention traffic or have some kind of demand driver. How does that play into their strategy? Yeah. So this is interesting. We mentioned this, this is where this company got their start. They didn't do a whole lot with hotels for a long time. And it's one that I think people overlook. They own 100% of it, right? They bring a couple advantages to the table. One, they operate the hotels themselves, and they're really good at it. These are kind of higher-end hotels. The other thing is they bring lots of capital, and they're willing to develop and build those hotels. Two of them that are coming online here, one is in uh, St. Louis, so it's really adjacent to the Cardinals. So for people like to go see Major League Baseball, um, they have a great location right there that people want to go to the park. They're going to stay at that hotel. And they have one right next to the Texas Rangers as well. Those are in development and are going to be coming online soon. Um, uh, so the great thing about this hotel business is they've put about $800 million into it over the last several years. And what they've seen come is they took a good chunk of that out and they doubled uh, their earnings that are coming out of those hotels before tax. So it went up over $200 million. It was 123 and it went up over well over 200 And their net investment was about $140 million. Um, so they're seeing great returns out of that business. But here's the interesting thing. It doesn't really show up on the financial statements of Lowe's for a couple of reasons. One is they're developing those new hotels so they got put in money. They're spending money on pre-opening costs. This past quarter, they had some hurricane issues that impacted the Orlando hotels. So the amount of net income that Lowe's reported from these hotels was only $3 million in the quarter. And that's down from $11 million the prior year. Um, in reality, when you look at the hotels and, and the revenue rate and all that kind of stuff that they have, these are way above average hotels. I think the hotels are worth anywhere from 5 to $8 billion. Um, that's a big number. But if you look at comparable sales and things that have happened in that space, it's not unreasonable. So this is one where the earnings looking at $3 million in a quarter look like, man, they're worth nothing. In reality, 
this generates a lot of cash flow, and um, they're making investments. It's going to grow that business. Yeah. Well, I, I think the approach that they're taking is different from the industry as well. They, they emphasize that they're owner, operator, developer all together in one. Whereas you yeah. see a lot of the industry, uh, you know, you maybe you sign over the rights to use your brand name and you help manage the property, but you don't own and, and kind of develop the, uh, the, the 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 hotel. And I think right. the niche that they play in uh, that really drives their value. You mentioned uh, Orlando, how they're they're in partnership uh, uh, with the parks to develop those sorts of things and in yep. some of their new operations as you know you mentioned by the by the ballpark they're working with uh, the baseball team as well as another big family company I think is the Cordish uh, uh, companies yep. to develop that sort of thing and it, because they own and develop the uh, the property they're able to form relationships that other other hotel operators right. can't do absolutely and when they're right next to the demand driver whether it be a convention center obviously they have their kind of namesake hotel right in New York City that they just remodeled they put a couple hundred million dollars into that a few years ago so that's beautiful spot right there in downtown Manhattan. But they have built-in demand drivers. So what's seen as kind of a cyclical business, the hotel business, it kind of eliminates that. And then you just have a good cash flow model, right, in the business. And when when they become valuable money-producing assets, what can you do? Then you can refinance them. You take the money that you put out to develop them, then you can redeploy that in somewhere else. So there's two ways that those really valuable properties gain. One is in revenue, and they can raise their rates and do all that kind of stuff. You can also refinance them, and they also go up with the value of the real estate. Because you find in some of these markets, when you put a hotel there and start developing around, the area around it starts to grow as well. And you look at five, ten years down the line, and that real estate's become a lot more valuable than it was prior to you building the hotel. Yeah, I think this hotel business, when I when I first started looking at it, uh, you know, maybe it was a little skeptical. But as, as you look into their strategy and the way they allocate their capital and the niche they're trying to play in, um, I, I think it's, it's it's a really attractive attractive approach that they're taking. Yep. Um, the, the last business that kind of ties off uh, the Lowe's uh, family of companies uh, is this consolidated container business, their most recent acquisition. Uh, they play in the kind of plastic packaging business. What is the strategy there uh, for Lowe's? Yep. So this is new. They, they haven't had a ton of disclosure. We know they paid $1.2 billion for the business. The great thing about this business is it's very fragmented. And so since they've made that purchase just a year or so ago, they've added six bold-on acquisitions. So with $1.2 billion invested in six bold-on acquisitions, they're allowing this company, which is the only one, to retain all their capital so they can reinvest it and buy more things. And I think with a fragmented market, you're going to see them grow and earn good returns on capital over time as well. And they haven't really priced any growth into that business, like I said, although they've done six acquisitions already and there's going to be more to come. Yeah, they don't tell us tell us a lot about about the business, nope. but they they do tell us that those bolt-on acquisitions have been self-financed mm-hmm. out of the consolidated container uh, itself. The parent company Lowe's has not, you know, helped out with the financing of those acquisitions. So that tells you something in and of itself of, of their their ability to generate cash flows and kind of grab up uh, the rest of this market. Yep, that's exactly right. That's what they're doing. And then when they paid them, they paid fifty percent cash, and then they financed the rest. Sure. So bring bring all these parts uh, parts of the business together. You know, you've got uh, an insurer that seems to be a little bit undervalued, kind of bottom trough valuation on these energy businesses, and then a pretty dependable hotel business and what appears to be a growing packaging business. When you put all that together, what what do you make of the Lowe's valuation today and the attractiveness of the stock? Well, here's the great thing: um, its value, the book value for the business, is just under sixty five dollars, so about sixty four dollars and ninety cents. And we're getting a stock that's around 50 bucks right now. So we're paying about 75, 77% uh, of book value for this business. Um, that's not where it deserves to be. And as a result of that, and we have people that own 30% of the stock, they're very cognizant of it. And their two jobs um, are basically at, at the headquarters is to allocate capital, 
and then to find great people to run their subsidiary businesses. And what they've done recently in the last 22 months, they've bought back 10% of their shares. If you go back over the last 10 years, it's been 30% of their stock that they've bought back. And so that's a built-in catalyst that we have for this business to perform. If they can buy back that stock at under book value, <clears throat> I think investors at these prices will benefit two ways. One in the regular growth of the business, and the second one is an increasing multiple on that stock price. It'll be over one book at some point in time where people start to recognize, man, look at all the cash that thinks that went off and it's doing really well. Yeah. As I was looking at this business, you know, you look at the past 10 years owning the Diamond Offshore business, uh, being you know heavily exposed uh, to to um, the MLP that kind of has had, had a rough cycle. Uh, in, even in the face of that cycle, you still see the stock up 40% over that period of time. And part of that is is a large amount of you know cash buybacks being put back into the business and the dependableness um, of the other other part of uh, you know the other cash flow generating parts of the business. So what's attractive to me about this company is you have these exposures to these parts of the energy market, uh, particularly offshore, that appear to be so at the bottom of the trough uh, valuation of the cycle. But so you get that the upside of that turning back around and you know realizing you know its true potential. As well as the safety of being part of this just really dependable permanent capital business with, and I think we talked about this before the show, the capital allocation discipline of of the Tishes maybe you're more comfortable with than many that play in the energy industry. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think um, <clears throat> one thing we noticed back when these energy companies were producing a lot of dividends, they sent them back home and they reinvested them in other things. So unlike most energy companies where they get excited when things are going well and they buy land and pay big multiples and make new investments, these guys are shrewd capital allocators. And so I love that part of the business. And we have CNA, the good insurance company, that's sending them $800 million in dividends a year. So as we look forward and we see turnaround in some of these energy businesses, it's not unreasonable to expect that this company is going to get you know a billion or a billion two or a billion five in dividends coming in each year. And um, – the question is, what will they do with that capital? I can tell you, if the stock price is cheap, they'll buy back their stock, and it'll do very well. Yeah. Jim Tisch has said on conference calls with with kind of heightened valuations with with the way private equity is today, they don't foresee making a big acquisition today. So that means if you have if you have excess capital, what you're likely to do is, particularly at a company that's trading significantly below uh, book value, you're going to see those shares be bought back over time. We've seen that um, over a period of time. So, but you're not only buying uh, a company that is trading what appears to be below the valuation of the sum of its parts, but you have the, the management just pumping a bunch of cash into buybacks to you as a shareholder, which right. I, I think provides provides upside. Yeah, and that's one thing I really like. You know, I, I like conglomerates, and I don't mind that they trade a discount as long as they're well-run businesses. And you know, one of those is Berkshire Hathaway. Another one is Markel that we like here and talk quite a bit about. Um, those companies are trading closer to 1.5 times book, 1.4, 1.5 times book. So, the nice thing that we have about Lowe's that's different from Berkshire, and Berkshire has been reticent to buy back shares, though they've started to buy back a little bit recently relative to its huge market cap. Um, Lowe's is willing to buy back hand over fist when the price is right, but they're very strategic and they've done a good job of it over decades. So I, I'm very confident that they won't overpay for buybacks. They'll do them at the right time, and that's going to create a building catalyst for the rest of us, the shareholders. So um, I like that. Mr. Buffett, maybe you should buy back a little bit more stock, too, particularly yeah. when it's cheap, right? Hey, I hope you're listening. I hope yeah, you're listening. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Buck, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show, and I hope uh, we'll have yeah. you on again soon. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Buck Hartzell, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.